Correct. There's a professional broadcast going on here. It cannot come at the cost of a lamb casserole. Put that spoon down. Right, I'm warning you again. I don't want to get clocked to the back of the head like the untouchables with a rolling pin. We we just arguing. Yeah. There was no comeback. I was just telling her off. An argument is a is a is a two way thing, isn't it? If you just tell somebody off, that's not an argument. Chinch, I think I think all of us know the you know the, the power dynamics of your relationship with Nikki to know that there will be a comeback eventually, and you will lose. <laughs> there there will be there will be pain at the sharp end if there is one of a rolling pin. Um, but at least you heard me be a man and stand up and tell her to stop making so much. <laughs> no, are you sighing? Sighing's not going to get you anywhere. Put down the carving. Put down the carving knives. No, seriously. Don't make her sound like Nora Batty as well. Like she's coming at you with a rolling pin. She's coming at you with a dumbbell that she can, but you most she's, certainly can't. She's chopping chives like butter wouldn't melt in her mouth. Rosemary. Oh, it's rosemary. <laughs> we even got the wrong herb. Ginger, if we did, if we did a show and tell episode for for for, for all those watching with just herbs, how many do you think that you would get right? Oh, well, you, the problems I have with with fruit and vegetables are pretty obvious, but herbs. I'm pretty sharp on my herbs. I know my basil from my... Is, is turmeric a herb? It's not a herb, it's a spice. It's a spice, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so... Yeah, if see, I... I know the difference between spices and herbs. That's how great I am. <laughs> so we widen it out to just any sort of food category. And can you tell the difference? Can yeah, Chinch between, identify foods? Between that chai like and uh, vanilla swirl ice cream. I could do that, definitely. Look, having, having heard some of the ideas that were pitched to fill the hole uh, that was created by Match of the Day in the schedules when football uh, was on hiatus, I can tell you Chinch, chinch identifying fruit and veg would be a prime time winner. <laughs> Hang on a minute. I feel like that, that's a, a Peter Crouch vehicle waiting to happen. Yeah. What isn't? That's the thing about Peter Crouch. You can assign him to anything. This is Set Beast Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, whose sofa is now his press box, Stephen Wyeth, whose attic is now his gantry, and Andy Hinchcliffe, whose microphone was, is, and always will be his tool. Um, the food I would like to tell you about, um, because uh, it is tradition now, if anybody goes away, uh, we then come back to regale each and every one of the members of the Set Beast Menu team about our favourite meal. Uh, from when we were away. So I want to uh, talk about something because it was a bit of a life-changing moment for me. I, for the very first time, had a vegan burger. Now, I appreciate this is catching on to something that has been prevalent in society for a, a great many years, but I like to think of myself as a red-blooded male and a red-faced male if spent 30 minutes in the sunshine. Uh, so I want to tell you about the vegan burger that I had. It was a black bean and broccoli burger. Oh, nice. And it was so enjoyable that my wife decided to take a slow-mo video of me taking the first bite of uh, the burger. So I'm not going to send it to anybody apart from the four of you or the three of you uh, because it's not for public consumption. But um, it just goes to show that apparently she's right when she says I've got a massive mouth. So metaphorically and indeed literally, I have a massive mouth. Was it the worst image of somebody consuming a bur burger captured since Ed Miliband? <laughs> it, was, it was better than the bacon sandwich, but put it this way, it's better to see it without sound than to hear it constantly being chewed upon during the process of a podcast. I've got nothing more than coffee this morning, so don't you worry about that. I'm just, I'm just interested to know, who told you, Hugh, that you are a red-blooded male? Mm, good question. <laughs> we've, we would never do that because you aren't. Your wife would not do that because you aren't. Have you just made that up and just... Who said that to you? He self-identifies as a... <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the food. The football is chinched. Do you know what Hugh, we're talking about? Oh, oh, there's another question about my manliness. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> Hugh, have you got a pen 
that has a yellow base and a white sort of neck. Because it looks, when you gesticulate wildly with it on screen, it looks a bit like you've got a really like overly long cigarette. <laughs> You're kind of a 75-year-old Cockney woman going, the thing about, the thing about these days is... <laughs> He's a modern-day Doc Cotton, isn't he? He is, it's very Doc Cotton. Well, I, I described the vegan burger in a way that suggests that I'm, I'm about 90 to so 95 years old. So it's a burger, but it's got black beans and broccoli in it. Excellent. And would you believe it tasted all right? That's the thing. I said to Sharon, it's all right. I'd have another one. There you go. Thank you. I feel like we've uh, ticked off as many stereotypes as we possibly can in the first uh, two and a half minutes of this programme. Um, so that's the, that's the food. Chinch, do you know what the football is today? Uh, I'm not sure of the topic, but I am sure that it's going to be bang up to date. <laughs> yes, strangely for us. We are asking if somebody could tell me, you, us, what the f*** is going on? Seriously, I know that football, like everything, is governed in part by chaos, or as we know it in the UK, Boris Johnson. But geez, the Premier League has appeared to deliver a healthier dose than normal of the random. We've had three 5-2s, two of them away wins, one of them at Manchester City. There have been two 4-3s, both of them involving Leeds. Chelsea were 3-0 down at West Brom inside half an hour. Even West Ham are winning 4-0. And that's before we even get to the handball farce. And the fact that we're recording this before Liverpool against Arsenal, which in recent years has given us a 5-all, a 4-all and a 6-3. So I ask again, what the f*** is going on? For editing and parental awkwardness reasons, we'll be WTFing from now on. Uh, that is to come, also to come, an out-of-context reacher passage read by Andy Hinchcliffe. Despite involving a typical level of robust violence, it will still appear like an oasis of calm after what will doubtless be a Wyeth rant about the handball rule. Um, so you can get in touch with the podcast at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and our YouTube channel is there for you to subscribe to as well. And um, before your emails, a final reminder, and this is mainly for Andy Hinchcliffe, a final reminder about SPM PLPL. You have until the end of Monday, UK time, to submit your selections for a final Premier League table. I wonder how much it might have changed over the course of the first three weeks of the Premier League season. You can tinker with it, though, until October the 5th, or as Chinch will no doubt do, wait until we remind him on the evening of October the 5th to make a considered one true selection. Uh, whichever path you choose, please head to tinyurl.com forward slash setpiece menu and put the 20 teams in the order you think that they will finish this season. Points are awarded for how accurate you are. And if you get the top four and the bottom three exactly right, it is a simple game. Do it, if only to make us feel a little bit better about ourselves. It'll take about three minutes, I promise. Three minutes. The same amount of time you spend trying to decide whether Dominic Calvert-Lewin or Danny Ying should be in your fantasy team. So that is tinyurl.com forward slash setpiece menu for the SPMPLPL. The deadline is the end of this Monday coming up, October the 5th. Thank you kindly in advance. Do not be distracted by transfer deadline day. This is your most important priority on October the 5th. Chinch, are you going to do it? Rory, have you done it? Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm not delaying. I'm not delaying so I can see how the league's going to pan out. It looks like I'm doing that, but I'm not. I just have forgotten to do it. So I'm not, I'm not playing the game. I'm, it's not SPM, PL, 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 PL game management. It isn't. It's just I've forgotten to actually do it. So I will Is get around to it. Don't worry. Are you like me, Chinch, whenever you remember that you've forgotten to do it? Do you then tell yourself the lie that actually it's good you've forgotten to do it? Because um, it means that the later you leave it, the more likely you are to be accurate. It's Because I do, I remember, because with my age, I do forget a lot. Then I remember mm. it. But then, strangely, when I do remember, I still don't go and do it. Mm. I find other stuff mm. to do. To, so maybe there's a reason that I'm putting it off. Maybe I just really don't want to do it. But I will, I'll give myself a Chinese burn and I will, I will get round and I will do it. I will do it. Do you, I'm going to get close to want... winning. I'll probably beat you three anyway. So really, whenever I do it, 
doesn't make any difference because I'm going to beat you three and probably win the whole damn thing. Are you putting it off? Does it remind you of your own mortality? Um, no, I'm reminded every day of my own mortality. I just look down and realize I am very close to the grave. <laughs> That's height thing. Uh, no, no, I'm not shrinking. I just look at my body and it is moving towards the floor at an alarming rate. Uh, so, yes, motivation enough, I would imagine, for you to get your SPMPLPL in before October the 5th, the end of October the 5th. Colin Boucher has emailed in response to some different predictions, not the SPMPLPL, the ones that we made at the end of last week's show in order to undermine our attempts at nuance in the preceding two pods. Hi, team, and Chinch, says Colin. I enjoyed your Hang on, what? And Am I not part of the team? No, you are too important for that. Or, or not important at all. I enjoyed your predictions and have made some of my own, says Colin. Proper predictions, he says. Number one, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will not be Manchester United manager by the end of May 2021. Number two, Sergio Aguero will announce that he is leaving Manchester City. And number three, West Ham will have three different managers this season, including David Moyes. And then he says... Well, they've already had two, so that's a fairly <laughs> yeah. safe prediction. Then he says... Chinch-style predictions. Number one, Jamie Vardy will be sent off for headbutting a player. Number two, Graham Souness will announce that Paul Pogba is the worst player ever. And number three, <laughs> Ralph Hasenhüttl will win manager of the season despite Southampton being rubbish. Keep up the good work, says Colin. So, so Chinch, uh, he's followed the lead not only of your stupid suggestions, but by including Jamie Vardy in one of them. Mine weren't, mine weren't stu- I don't think there's a lot of difference between his first lot of predictions and the second lot of predictions. They all could come true. There's an interesting thing with, with Hasenhuttle that, that occurred to me the other day. I wonder it might be a pod for the future, future pod, which is that it's may, maybe the converse of the, knee, of the knee-jerk reaction thing, that as soon as we decide, as, as a sort of football culture, that, that someone is good, that they, they kind of become immune to criticism. So South, Southampton actually had quite a bad start to the Premier League season, as have Sheffield United, all the teams in red and white stripes. And yet, because their managers have been decreed to be good, they are not. They are actually not criticised. So well, they're not the reason. What's the opposite it? of a knee-jerk reaction? Uh, an elbow fold. Taking the fist away from the jaw. A, re- a reverse elbow snap. <laughs> Is it crossing the legs? Crossing. Is that the opposite of jer- what's the opposite of jerking your knee? Is keeping your your legs entirely still, isn't it? Yeah, it's taking your knee out of someone's ghoulies and putting it back into a more natural position. But you see, Rory's fallen into a trap there that I never thought you would succumb to, of, of making a judgment based on what three no, no, results. No. no, no, no. Obviously, these things will change, but it just struck me that it's interesting with Hasenhuttle that, that despite, and Wilder, that despite the, kind of, the fact that you know, we live in this ridiculous kind of period where everything is kind of one defeat, that manager needs to be sacked, that they are... They are effectively immune from it because we have decided that they are good things. It's interesting. It's, I mean, it, it, I've no doubt that both of them will turn it round and it'll be fine. But you, you just wonder, like, how long would it have to last before people went? I said, this Ralph, this Ralph Hasenhuttle, he's not as good as I've been saying for two years. Do you is, know this what I mean? where, is, is this where we use this famous phrase? They bought themselves some time because yes. of how great yeah. they were last season. Yeah, they're rubbish. They haven't won in the first ten matches, but they bought themselves some time. So stick with them. But in, in Hasenhutl's defence, when Hugh ran through the list of outrageous results at the start of the season, the obvious one he left off was Southampton protecting a one-goal lead for 85 minutes. <laughs> I mean, that's the most outlandish thing that's happened since the start of the campaign. 
And uh, one of your predictions, Rory, was that uh, Frank Lampard will have praise showered upon him regardless of what Chelsea do this season. So he might fall into that category for slightly different reasons as well. That, that was a great example, the West Brom thing, was a great example of, of you can either criticise him for them being 3-0 down or you can, you can praise him for the comeback. And Lampard has been praised for the comeback. Buffalo Chris Wilkerson has done something that is becoming a bit of a trend um, on email. He's offered a subject suggestion while also contributing to an ongoing theme. Chris, don't worry, the subject is on the list. Meanwhile, you'll remember, we've created a restaurant where each of the staff is a Premier League manager most suited to the role. And this is where Chris contributes to that ongoing theme. May I suggest the Premier League manager restaurant could be owned by the Pozzo family. I ignore relegations this season. Who's to say what really is happening in this crazy year, says Chris. With that in mind, there will be no sweating at any of our Pozzo Express locations, particularly not uh, those south of London. Military injuries or not, I'm also 100% sure that Slaven Bilic is wearing a heavily stained white apron and cooking with a cigarette on the go, hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> he has to take this job, apparently, because his band haven't really got going. All the best, Chris Wilkinson. P.S. Thank you for making me a Buffalo. It really was a roller coaster ride after Chinch called my Photoshop's brilliant. I got Buffalo status, then Chinch told me to get a life. It was the most suitable thing that has ever happened. <laughs> it's the circle of life. It's the Chinch circle of life. I praise you. I kick the stool away. Uh, thank you for those suggestions. Uh, that our Premier League man manager restaurant, which I think we're going to call Preta Manager, which is our first and you know, maybe best you know, offering. Slaven Bilic, if he were, he, yeah, he would be one of those kind of, you know, in the Muppets, that the Swedish chef who was just crazy. He'd have a blood-stained overall. He'd have a, not a machete. You don't, you don't, you don't cook with a machete. What, a cleaver? A cleaver. Definitely don't cook with a machete. There'd be blood all over the, yeah, you don't. That's why I don't do a lot of cooking. That's why my, my Benofi pies are chives with a... <laughs> Slaven, absolutely. If you went in the back, you had a lovely meal prepared for you. If you went in the back to see who had prepared it, there'd be blood all over the walls. Yes, Bilic would be the person in charge of cutting up the slices of beef and would occasionally need reminding that you had to kill the cow first. First, yes. Uh, Matt Cox has emailed about our knee-jerk episodes of the last two weeks. Hi, guys. Thoroughly enjoy the pod on knee-jerk reactions, as I usually do. I was really interested in the Norwich point, how they were regarded as an unlucky team and the best bottom club, etc., because it was, in hindsight, completely true. But I wondered also if people continuing to commit to that was also the result of simply not watching them play. As was said by Stephen, I think, this myth started after they beat Manchester City, which was obviously a highly viewed game. It was also early on, so it created a first impression, coupled with what Rory, I think, said about the young players, progressive manager, etc. How many more Norwich games did those people actually watch? I know I didn't watch many after the City game and just assumed they'd be fine until they obviously weren't going to be. Fans committed to that knee-jerk reaction because they wanted to have an opinion on Norwich, to appear knowledgeable. And since most people don't pursue or peruse Norwich games all that often, they weren't just fighting the weight of evidence to the contrary, they were outright avoiding it. Again, I include myself in this. Separately, I also think that negative reactions to pundits and journalists' predictions or fence-sitting are informed by existing agendas. The first thought, often, though hopefully not that often, is I dislike E.G. Rory Smith, and therefore, if I can criticise him, I will. So how can I criticise him for this? Again, though, that's Twitter, so maybe it's not fully representative. Keep up the good work, guys. That's from Matt Cox. That's a great point about the power of TV, and obviously I, I wasn't involved last week, um, so I don't know whether you covered it, but th there is definitely a thing where if you are, if a team is on television and they play well, that creates a much more powerful impression of what that team is actually like than, say, five, six, seven games that aren't on TV, that, aren't, that don't attract an audience, and it applies to players as well. If players do well in a tele televised game, that, that tends to have an impact on their reputation that 
that consistent performance over the course of a month that's not on TV or not on kind of not attracting a lot of eyeballs can have. There's definitely a power of television to shape our impressions of teams and what they are like. Is it, is it just television? Because I was going to ask the three of you, if you're doing preparation for a game and you haven't actually seen a team play, do you watch their games back or do you speak to people who, or do you speak to anybody at all or do you just make something up? Where do you get your information? Because I know where I get mine from. I speak to people, the local journalists or people who watch all their games so you get a fair idea. Where do you get your information from? Say as a team that you haven't, you haven't seen all season, you wouldn't just say, well, I saw them, like you say, I saw them once, they play well against somebody, so that means they must be great. Where, where do you get your information from? The ether, chinch. <laughs> That, that's your answer. That's your answer. I tap some stuff into a computer and it magically. But, but what do you, but do you do? You watch them play. Seems yeah, a stupid question, but possible. you go and watch them play. You, but most people with their football knowledge, it won't come from actually watching teams play. They'll just have made their minds up reading the press or watching a clip of a game or see a certain player and think that's what that team is. They don't really fully look and, and find out the, the full answer to how, how good or bad a team. Yeah, is. Yeah, but that, that's watching games is probably the best way that the likes of you and I can prepare for what we do for a living, Chinch, because that gives yeah. you as, the best possible guidance as to the kinds of things to look out for. And from my point of view, familiarising yourself with the most important thing is, is identifying players. So the best way to prepare for that is, is to watch them play. I mean, the way that Rory would prepare for what he does, uh, you know, is, well, it's a couple of cigarettes, a cup I of coffee, an and just arrive point, at the actually, stadium an hour before kickoff. <laughs> would you, would you, I'm not, not trying to run down people who don't, because everyone understands yes, you are, football. You are, no, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. You're, I'm not, you're subtweeting your rubbish colleagues. I, no, no, no. When I speak to people about games, and even colleagues that I work with about games and what happens within a game, even though you watch a game, doesn't mean you understand what's going on, and you actually see what's going on, the good and the bad. So I think maybe... Speaking to people or reading reports, intelligent reports on games gives you a better insight. Because sometimes you watch, like watching a film or watching a game, if you don't get it, you don't get it or you see what you want to see. Or maybe you've already got these ideas in your head about what this team is all about. So you don't actually see what you need to see when you watch a game. Not, not, not every game of football is the same as Christopher Nolan's most recent film, Tenet, Chinch, but I appreciate the point that you're making. I'm not sure, just to, to what Steve said, I'm not sure, I suppose to an extent, I, I don't, have to pass judgment on how teams play in the same way as you and Stephen do. So I, I wouldn't necessarily sort of think I've got to go and watch, you know, watch the last three games from each of the teams playing tonight because... You're like a bigger theme kind of guy, aren't well, you? Well, it's kind of like, even when you go abroad to do kind of a, a surprise package story or whatever, you, it, the, the, research, the research you do is, are they top? Do you know what I mean? If <laughs> and, and then you go and ask people why, why they're top. Will That's this like, get clicks? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but like, if, you, if you were to say, I don't know, like, I suppose Atalanta was the last time I did it. Like, mm-hmm. how Atalanta play is, is obviously really interesting of its own, in its own right. And it, it's a fascinating style. And Gasparini's Des- got these kind of ideas that, that are relatively unorthodox. But that was only a part of the story. Like, did, you, did you ever watch a game of theirs? Or did you yeah, just happen to see a game? Time. But you didn't no, sit down and say, I need to watch them play. So no, does it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have added, in, in that context of a piece like that, it wouldn't have added a vast amount to say, to, I didn't need a t- kind of tactical analysis of what Atlanta are doing well you, you need to be able to sum up for for a really broad audience in a piece like that w- what it is that's made them successful relatively yeah. succinctly does it's part of a broader theme what's what I mm, where it's interesting is if you're writing kind of match reports which obviously I, I don't massively do in my current role um, I think you probably need to have seen a team as much as possible to be able to assess whether that match was, was kind of indicative of their level, whether they excelled, whether they did badly. But it's, there's a really interesting 
form of journalism now, which is kind of tactical analysis, post-game tactical, sort of breaking down the tactics of a game after the match, which I always think is slightly flawed if you don't know what the coaches were trying to do. Mm-hmm. I, think, I don't really understand how you can assess the team's tactics if you, if you don't know what their plan was, because otherwise it can just be stuff that happens. Whereas you, as you say, you speak to people, Jane, so you have mm-hmm. an idea of what they might be trying to do. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's slightly different, I think, to, to what Chinch has to prepare for, is that there is so much space now to be filled, both in sort of traditional media and online media, that people take on roles that in, in some ways either aren't required or they're ill-suited for. And as you've just described, you end up with people tactically analysing something that really didn't need tactically analysing, and certainly not by them. Rory's storytelling is often before the game and after the game, whereas Chinch and Steve, you tell the story from minute one to minute 90, and that's, that's I suppose, the main thing. And then we go home. Too. And then you go home, and you haven't been to Italy to bother to speak to anybody before or indeed afterwards. Um, Ollie Wicken has contributed on the same theme, the knee-jerk reactions. Dear chaps, love the pod. Episodes 196 and 197 on knee-jerk reactions provided yet another excellent and thought-provoking discussion. Thank you. I left that in, Ollie. You might be surprised to know. I'd like to contribute two observations that can contextualise what Chinch was so enjoyably bemoaning, the ubiquity of predictions. First, throughout human history, getting an audience to focus on the future has always been the most essential of all storytelling techniques to engage interest and raise stakes. It's built into the writing of novels and movies through such devices as plot development, scene choice, and dialogue. In the case of sport, however, it mostly has to be added from the outside, hence the prevalence of predictions in the media surrounding a game to massage people's anticipation of the outcome. My second observation on the prevalence of predictions is something that you didn't mention, but is staring you in the face every time that you watch a match from the chests of the players. Last season, 50% of Premier League shirts had the name of a gambling company on the front. In addition, this season, when we can only watch football on TV, we're bombarded with betting commercials. The betting industry commoditizes football as a series of outcomes rather than a beautiful game. This has been true forever, at least since the days of the Littlewoods pools, but never as much as now when it's in the media's commercial interests to create an environment that makes their gambling Gambling clients' ads and their own associated betting companies perform better. The culture of predictions feeds the betting industry's profits. That is all, he says. I particularly enjoy your pod because, unlike the bulk of football podcasts, it resolutely doesn't speculate on the future and dwells on the non-linear intellectual delights that make football what it is. Having said all this, I'm definitely already thinking ahead to pod 200. I predict something special. Cheers and keep up the good work. That's from Ollie Wicken. What number are we on now? At 198. Oh, wow. Oh, yes, yeah. cruising, we're not cruising down to get there. Well, no, but strictly yeah. speaking, the, the, the number you celebrate after 100 for reasons that have never been made clear to anybody is 250. Okay, so that's an excellent, because we have no plans whatsoever. No. Have we any idea of the, of the fans that watch games, how many, what percentage of them are betting on those games? I presume the numbers are rising. They're encouraged to do by all the adverts and everything else. But if, if the experience of watching football is not just watching the game and enjoying the game and you have a bet on the game, is, is the viewing experience changing? They're watching it for different reasons, but I don't know what percentage, again, are, is it kind of 10% of the, of the viewing public has maybe a bet on, on the game that's going on? But then you, you view the game very differently because you want certain things to happen. So again, I can understand then why you have these predictions because that's basically what people watching the game are doing. They're trying to predict how many corners, red cards, goals. So again, is that, it's all been fueled by gambling and betting on the games. 
I predict at some point in the near future that the 50-50 will become a 51-49 in favour of those who are watching it, not just for the football. I doubt that Seriously, it's at 50% that... now. But if no. you think, I mean, it's time for Hugh to bring up NFL. Um, and I oh. eschewed an opportunity to do it earlier on when Rory was talking about national consciousness when having games on television. But I'm going to do that now because fantasy NFL is so incredibly important to the way that people consume that sport and also because of it, it's, it's so imbued within the, the, the structure of the sport and how... Those because who you aren't need just many distractions from the actual game as anything you can to make it interesting. Find. And on, yet, please. Stephen, that is exactly the same reason why Fancy Premier League is working the same way. So, on your own sport, be that. No, but I think fan- if you combine gambling and fantasy, then you probably have quite a lot of a substantial proportion of the of the audience for any given game that is that is that has a, a sort of secondary interest. As Do you all- think it's more than fifty percent already? What what kind I don't of? No, but I, I wouldn't. I, the thing is, I don't do either. I don't gamble and I don't play fantasy football. So it's really hard for me to... It would be easy for me to sit here and be like, it's like streaming. That everyone it's like you don't streams. even love the game, Rory. I, no, mm. I just love it. I love it so purely, Stephen, that I don't need to, to adulterate, with, with something, <laughs> adulterate it with something else. The, um, also, I don't actually have that much chance to watch football. With a dirty £5 note on Jamie Vardy <laughs> headbutting somebody in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> I wonder whether it's like streaming, where if you stream games illegally you think everybody is streaming games and that it's this thing that millions of people do. And if you don't stream games illegally, you think that, oh, it's a tiny, tiny proportion of really, you know, it's a really small demographic of teenagers. And I wonder if it's the same with, with, with gambling, that you can fall into that same trap, that as someone who doesn't gamble, I would, I would naturally assume that the vast majority of people aren't gambling, but that may well be wrong, so I don't know. Uh, and finally, from Robbie Harms, who titles his email, From Your Bear Correspondent. Dear SPM crew, I have enjoyed immensely hearing about SPM listeners' encounters with bears, and I have a brief one to add. I work as a teacher at an intermediate school, fifth and sixth grade, and each afternoon my teaching partner and I take a walk outside around the school building as a screen time detox, as we are teaching virtually due to the pandemic. Last week, while we were on one of these walks, the assistant principal announced over the intercom that everyone needed to come inside ASAP and that no one could leave the building because, you guessed it, there was a bear roaming around the school across the street. We hurried inside where everyone was chatting about the bear. I could have heard incorrectly, but I think one teacher was asking about its size compared to an Ewok. And a few brave staff members <laughs> were waiting outside, phone cameras at the ready, hoping to spot it. Alas, no one saw it, but it was an exciting way to end a Thursday. On another note, Rory should not feel bad that his mum is bringing over loads of childhood memorabilia to his new home. Since I left for college several years ago, my mum has been gradually and methodically removing most of my stuff from her house. She sends me home with a box of error-laden fourth grade essays, I definitely was not up to Chinch's grammatical standards, and unimpressive soccer trophies nearly every time I come home. If it wasn't for a few pictures on the wall, you wouldn't know that she even had a son. Thanks for the wonderful recent episodes, hope you're well. That's from Robbie Harms, our bear correspondent. Can I just clear up the bear stuff? Was there a bear or not? There was because not a reports bear. of a bear, it's like someone crying bear <laughs> and they're not being a bear. Was there a bear? There was because no bear. That's, that's, it's like me saying, oh yeah, there was, there's rumours in Woodford of a, of a, of a, of a jaguar. <laughs> no one's seen it, but there's been rumours of it, so there's it must pl- have happened. Chinch, there's plenty <laughs> of jaguars in Woodford. <laughs> yeah, two yeah. right, there are, right there are. There's plenty of panthers as well. Anyway, but it, was there a bear? Was there a bear? There was no bear, which um, might have been, as you were running through that story, something of a surprise to uh, go against everything that we're saying about predicting and storytelling techniques. That's called a twist, Chinch. But that's not, that's not a bear update, because there was no bear. There was, there you was... can't have a bear update is the, the, the non-presence of bear. <laughs> thank you, thank you. 
an immediate update right now. You know, it's ramped the story up. We went for a walk. It was all frightening. We got, you know, we had to go in. It's a big announcement. Everyone's talking about the bear that no one actually saw. That is an odd start. He needs, needs to rethink. Really needs to rethink. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com, either including or the non-inclusion of bears. So then, guys, seriously, WTF. As we speak, the Premier League is 26 games old. There have been 96 goals. And as many handball decisions that have caused luminaries from Roy Hodgson to Jamie Carragher to throw their hands up and cry foul, or not, as the case may be. Now, I know we've spent just the last two pods talking about not falling into the trap of knee-jerk reactions, but this is kind of getting silly. It all started with Liverpool 4, Leeds 3, then Everton hit 5, so did Spurs, now Leicester, the first team to do that against one managed by Pep Guardiola. That is a Pep team, by the way, without a striker due to injury. Oh, and on the same day, Jose Mourinho said witheringly that he expected Song Hyung mins injury to be just the first. Mind you, he was in a mood, and perhaps for once, righteously. That's how crazy things are. Josie's allowed to be in a mood because apparently Eric Dyer can do something about the ball touching his arm when his back is turned and he's jumping completely naturally. So a simple question for matters on and off the pitch, WTF is going on? Is it a lack of preparation? Is it the discombobulating nature of starting the season a month late? Is it that FIFA and IFAB aren't listening to Stephen Wyeth when that's obviously the solution here? Or is it, as I imagine we will claim, all the Carabao Cup's fault? Seriously, guys, WTF. The first thing to say, we're not complaining about the amount of mistakes and the goals that are going in, are we? Because isn't, isn't that what football is about? So he's not going to say, oh my God, there's too many goals here. There's too much excitement here. Surely that should be, that's the thing we're watching the game for, isn't it? But did you not reach a point, I, I hit it on Saturday. United beat Brighton 3-2 with a, with a, a goal after the final whistle, which is, which is impressive level of drama. Uh, and then there was another game, I forget what, what happened. Everton, oh, Everton Palace finished 2-1 and there was a controversial penalty. And then there was the three-all West Brom-Chelsea game. And by, that, by the end of that game, by 7.45, whatever it was, I was thinking, do you know what, I really fancy a nil-nil. <laughs> Could really do with a nil-nil. And I looked at the schedule. A real tactical chess match. And it was Burnley Southampton. I thought, brilliant. This is just... <laughs> hey, this, actually, that's the only time that more people would have tuned into that game to try and get no goals and no action. Just need a nil-nil. Just need. No, I think they happened. I love the way that Sky's schedulers are, are thinking about you, Rory, the whole time. And then... who's, who's at home watching all of our football? Who's going to need a change of gear all of a sudden? Oh. Burnley Southampton, eight o'clock Saturday night. Boom. And then you have Leeds Sheffield United, which was almost a nil-nil until Patrick Bamford ruined it. And and you just, I, I obviously you, you don't want to sound like a like a smarmy smart smart ass dick who's, who's saying something to be controversial. You but could I, struggle with that. Carry on. I know. I do constantly. It's a daily battle. No, you don't. You don't. You don't. The I think that in the short term, it's been a brilliant, fun kind of start to the season. It's it's actually quite important, I guess, that it does feel a bit chaotic and random because fans aren't in the stadium, so that kind of, it, it makes it feel more worthwhile, I guess, if it's, if it's a little bit ridiculous. But I, I do overall, I would say that if, if it continues like this, with lots of, where 5-2 is like your default straw line, I think it, that's probably not a good thing. Those games need to be, those games feel special because they're rare. If they become unrare, then they feel less special, and it also makes all the other games feel a bit rubbish, which isn't, which isn't really ideal. So I think... It'd be great if it was like this for like a month and then reverted to type. So football's have- turned completely on its head where we're getting lots of goals and, and 5-2 scorelines and then we're craving a real tactical 1-0 win. When we're watching all the 1-0 wins in the past, we're thinking, oh my God, just give us some goals, give us some... So we, it's been turned on its head completely, hasn't it? 
we just basically like complaining. I think that's the, that's the most important thing to say. And if, if, if we're in a situation where we, I mean, we have often conjured up that seven, four between Portsmouth and Reading from all those years ago. Yeah, it wasn't a very, football match. yes, no. it wasn't an entertaining game. It was like seventh on the list of match of the day because they realized it was just terrible. So there are, there are two different types of goal fests. And, and we should probably say that enough of what we have seen probably caters for both. So we shouldn't necessarily sit on either side of one fence, particularly, uh, well, painlessly. That Portsmouth-Reading game most definitely led match of the day that evening. It, yeah. it was oh, the first it? game on match of the day. That, by, by, yes, that was the easiest decision the editor of match of the day has ever had to make. So, well, what was the one that didn't, didn't lead the match of the day running order then, that had loads and loads of goals? I'm sure I that there was one of them. It would have been a game that happened on the same day as two big teams facing each other. Yeah. Yes. Not drawing nil-nil. You're saying Portsmouth and Reading aren't two, two big teams. Two elite teams. <laughs> which, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm saying that about Portsmouth and Reading. That's fine. <laughs> yes, if their yes, fans definitely. want to argue, feel free. I mean, if, a, you, if you're putting together a list of teams from Berkshire and Hampshire, then Portsmouth and Reading are most definitely <laughs> on it. <laughs> they're not at the top of the list, but they're on it. Do you think, do you think that the, the, the majority of games that have had lots of goals in them so far have been games where there has been excellent attacking... And you kind of stand back and say, right, that's brilliant, fair enough. Or do you think they're games where the defences have been terrible? Because I would say that the majority Some of the defending. defending. Oh, my God. Goodness. The Man City game in particular. Oh, my word. Appalling. Def- I could, if, that's, if that's the standard, I could play now. Because <laughs> I could make those basic defensive errors with ease. They're just <laughs> instinctive to me. Just tre- Aren't they meant to be getting better? Aren't def- I know it's a harder game and all the rules and everything else, but aren't defenders meant to be fitter and quicker and more savvy and they work in the classroom so they know exactly what's going to happen at every given moment? Some of the, the defenders, it's great because we're getting mistakes and we're getting goals, which I'm, again, I say, isn't that what football is about? So here, here is the point then. Is it partly because of these teams not having the same amount of time pre-season, not having the same amount of games, not having the same amount of friendlies, as, yeah. as, rega- as ridiculous as we think some of those friendlies are, and certainly where they are on occasion, and watching them and thinking that nil-nil wasn't necessarily as entertaining as I wanted it to be. So there are occasions where we have decried pre-season, but are we now thinking that there is value in it because of the lack of preparation, the, 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 the lack of simpatico that yeah. seems to exist in Premier League defences at the moment? There's all sorts of factors have... Have com- have contributed to this. The yes, the the short preseason, the lack of preparation time, has probably led to clubs thinking, do you know what? The best thing to do here is just to go out and play and try and outscore our opponent more comprehensively than we would normally try and do that because tactically we haven't been able to prepare in the same way. And that also, I, I do. We talked about this when football was coming back behind closed doors. That it must help with the freedom to express yourself that there are not fans in the stadiums um, I was talking to one of the finest fullbacks to have represented Everton in the club's long and illustrious history the other day and Seamus, Col- recently. Oh. Seamus Coleman said to me that he was absolutely adamant that not having fans in the stadium was affecting the players ability to perform but when we went through some of the most incredible games that we'd already seen this season with him, it, I think he sort of accepted that he could see that the, the counterpoint was that certain, for him, he felt as though he, he wasn't able to get himself up for a game in the same way without supporters in the stadium. But there must clearly be, as we discussed in advance of this happening, a cross-section of footballers who are enjoying themselves, having that freedom 
without fans getting on their back to go out and do the business. It's good to see you win that verbal joust with Seamus Coleman, Steve. I, I really do applaud you for that. But Benjamin Mendy, a case in point, if he had the combined fitness of Mo Farah and Usain Bolt, he would still be awful. <laughs> fitness, lack of fitness, is you cannot say, oh, they're making all these mistakes because they're not fit enough. Nonsense. Absolute I nonsense. I think it's... I think it's lack of cohesion. I think it's lack of... Lack of footballing ability in certain cases. But I think it's... I mean, it's, it, it isn't like a catch-all explanation, but I think it's, it, to a large extent, it's that they, as, as you said, they haven't had those games to kind of get up to speed with each other again. And I suppose the, the flip side of that is that it was only about a fortnight since they last played. So you sort of think, well, why would they have lost it? But that, that to me, has been the, the, the theme throughout, is that the defences just don't look like the, the level of understanding that. I think the fitness is kind of overstated because they're, they're all suffering equally from the, the fitness. So you should, you should just as, you know, it's not that we're seeing loads of late goals because one attacking team, the attacking team is, is much fitter than the, than the defending team. It, we're seeing loads of late goals because they're both equally unfit. But in, in the Premier League, some of the goals that have been given away, I, I don't feel it's a lack of defensive understanding between the defensive unit. How many individual errors have been made, penalties given away, pass, cheap passes given away, goals scored from individual errors? And that, again, I understand what you're saying about a lack of understanding, not playing together, regardless of whether you played two weeks ago, you still need to build that. But the amount of players making, you know, Virgil van Dijk making, it was unheard of last season. So again, it does happen. Of course it happens. They are human beings. You're going to make the odd mistake. But how many players from how many different clubs are making these individual errors, bad challenges, giving penalties away? It's extraordinary at the start of this. There has to be some reason for it. And maybe it is. I just don't believe it's a lack of fitness. It's maybe a lack of sharpness more than anything else. But it seems to be more individual than, say, to do with the team or the defensive unit. Well, Chinch, you're in, you're in the better position than all of us to, to explain what... Not the better position, the very best position. The, be the very best position. You didn't know where mm. I was going with this. You've slightly uh, ruined your own reputation there. But you are in a best, the best position possible to tell us mm. and give mm. us insight into how an individual error comes about. So give us a reason why those individual <laughs> errors are happening. And is yes, give us mm. the benefit of your wisdom. As yes, a capitalist I really, I really <laughs> should have kept my mouth shut and said I'm in a better position <laughs> rather than the very best. But again, I did make horrendous individual errors. I had a complete lack of understanding with the players around me. So I, I am in the perfect position, but it is the mental state. And I think a lot of, especially at the top level with the very best, when you see Van Dyke making a mistake, you know that they're clearly, it's not that he can't actually control the ball or, or pass it or do what he wants to do with it. But you've just gone to sleep slightly, your, your positioning's wrong, or just you, you, you're complacent a little bit. It tends to be mental more than physical. It's not a lack of fitness or lack of technique. It's a lack of, of mental sharpness in, the, in that split second. At the risk of, of using one example and indulging it too much, I don't know. So Van Dijk obviously made the mistake against Arsenal at the end of last season as well. So that's now two in a few weeks. I don't know how much the Van Dyke mistake against Leeds was a mistake and how much of it was Bamford had clearly been told when Virgil van Dyke has a ball, a high ball coming across him, he will try and control it and spin around it and then play out from the back. So to make the run, to close him down from that specific angle. I don't, it was obviously, it was a mistake that led to a goal, but I suspect that Leeds had been told that's what Virgil van Dyke does exploit it. Patrick Bamford famously cannot score goals. Patrick Bamford has now scored in three successive Premier League games. I think with all three of his shots, he has turned into Ruud van Nistelrooy, which is the, the unlikeliest transformation anyone can imagine. Is there a flip side to all the mistakes, which is that I suspect because of 
the, the absence of crowds that strikers feel more relaxed? Uh, well, I th- obviously Van Dijk will have been put under pressure by better strikers than Patrick Bamford. If that Not is the on case, current you know, form. Attack, attack him, Marcelo Bielsa. Patrick, can you attack him from a 37 degree angle? He maybe goes into that degree of, of kind of um, assessment think, no, of, of how, think, uh, how to cause a defender problem. But Patrick Bamford, look at his goals that he scored this season. I watched him in the Championship and watched him in the Premier League. If you look at the goals that he's scoring in the Premier League, I feel a lot of them are to do with his mental sharpness. He has the ability in the Championship he probably felt, I'm better than this. He was a bit lethargic and laborious in the way that he put. Look how sharp he is in the Premier League. You have to be, but also look at the goals that he's scoring, the positions that he's getting into, and that comes from mental sharpness. So again, defenders making mistakes, strikers scoring goals. It comes from what's upstairs in, in many cases, because we know they've all got the technical ability, but making mistakes or getting yourself into goal-scoring positions comes from using your brain. I think Rory might be onto something. That Obviously, we know that managers prepare their teams and individual players in minute detail and, and pour over footage of their opponents looking for weaknesses. But maybe because they've had less time to prepare their players physically for the new season, maybe that is the, they've enhanced that approach even further to try, you know, because it's all about those fine margins to them, isn't it? And they need to feel as though they are doing something that perhaps the opposition manager hasn't thought of to try and gain that small advantage. And because their pre-season has been completely different this time around, maybe they've, they, maybe they've taken a different approach, which is working in a different way. So that's, that's most of the on-field issues that perhaps are, are, are affecting this kind of crazy random, and as Rory said, arbitrary beginning to this season. But what about the off-field factors that might have, particularly this season? Now, we talked about the fans not being there, but what, what about the, the, the scheduling and the, and the fact that there are more games than before because they're having to squeeze in the Carabao Cup nonsensically, most would agree. Um, uh, he says editorialising. Um, but also there is the element of it, it starting a little bit later and there's just this kind of feeling of something being different. Is that, is that enough of an effect to be able to create all this that we've, that we've been talking about? I think the sense of, of weird, there's a sense of weirdness around the whole thing because of the, you know, the empty stadiums, because of the, the fact that it's like nearly October, um, because of, of the fact that we're only three games in, you know, because the Carabao Cup just, just has, is just here and suddenly we're in round five of the Carabao Cup and it's, it's, it's once a week. The, there, that probably isn't helping. But I think the bigger factor is the compressed schedule makes teams probably more prone to changing things to keep players fresh. There's probably more rotation, which again, doesn't help the cohesion. I think it probably makes players individually a little bit more conscious of the risk of injury, if that makes sense. And that maybe means you don't, maybe, maybe you don't put your, you, you know, you maybe you don't, you don't put the tackle in because you're a bit, you're not, you're not quite there. You're not quite trusting your body that you can make the tackle. Um, and I wonder whether there is, as Steve touched on, a lack of preparation time, lack of training time to get ready for, the, for each game, which means you don't know what's coming quite as much, which means you're more vulnerable to another team's attacks. There's, there's just a load of kind of slightly random... The ran, it feels like the randomness has increased. And across Europe, not just in the Premier League, like it feels like every, you know, Bayern going to Hoffenheim and losing 4-1 feels, feels weird. And then Dortmund dropping points feels less weird. They do that a lot. Um, it's nice that some things are still the same, but I, d- I just wonder whether there is, this is something we, we will see. Well, there's two things. Either it irons itself out and the, the bigger clubs with the bigger squads reassert themselves or the randomness kind of continues through the season. We see that everyone's a little bit more susceptible to injuries and spates of injuries. So 
it, the season kind of gets defined a little bit by when those injuries come. So if if Man City have a run of injuries in a in a three week four week spell when they've got relatively easy games, then maybe maybe it doesn't affect them at all. If they have a run of injuries when they face Manchester United and Chelsea and Arsenal in four weeks or whatever, then it will affect them. And I, I just wonder whether that because of that poss- that kind of X factor almost in 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 the season because everything's so tightly compressed that the the value of each injury or the damage done by each injury is, is greater, whether we might just see a slightly more random kind of season throughout. And I'm pretty sure that we're not going to see another kind of 97, 98, 99, 100 point season anywhere in Europe. And that's fixture congestion and the, the League Cup's impact upon that is another thing that might just be messing a little bit with managers' minds as to how best to stagger their players' involvement in early season games. Because normally when the Premier League clubs, especially those who are in Europe, join the Carabao Cup, they've already played, what, eight, nine, ten games across a couple of competitions. So it's understandable that they would look to make changes and, and rest players for the early rounds of that competition. But Manchester City, for example, made eight changes against Bournemouth in what was their first game in the League Cup. But they'd only played once in the season prior to that. So as well as this sort of unusual preparation time, you're then immediately making massive alterations when your players haven't had an opportunity to get up and running as yet. And that maybe further disrupts the players' rhythm and ability to get into their stride at the start of an unusual campaign. And Manchester, there's nothing unusual about Manchester City making eight changes for a Carabao Cup tie, and they were still more than strong enough to beat Bournemouth. But we've seen it everywhere else. I mean, Brighton have done brilliantly in the League Cup because they've made 11 changes for each of their games and still played well and won. So it can most certainly work. But for, for each player and each club's set of circumstances have been different at the start of the season and I'm surprised that in some ways some Premier League clubs especially the bigger ones haven't used those early round Carabao Cup games a little bit like pre-season matches to get yeah. people up to speed. I think it's what you know coaches and, and managers throughout the years have said the value of pre-season and people not involved in the game have never really understood it probably now we really do understand it. it's not necessarily in increasing the fitness levels it's the match sharpness it's why you play games in pre-season so you can get the match sharpness the players are, are so much fitter than they ever were I don't think their fitness levels drop they don't need to get fitter they need to get sharper that's why they play games in pre-season what's happened this time around is they're trying to get that match sharpness in competitive games, which is normally what preseason gives you. So you go into the league or the, or the cup and you've already played five or six preseason games where what's happening now is you're seeing the, and they pick up probably the injuries that they're getting in competitive games in preseason, recovering time for the season to start. They've not had those games in preseason. So it's not necessarily the, the physical work to get fitter. It's the, it's the matches, the, comp, the competitive games in preseason to get your sharpness. And that's maybe why, again, we're seeing all these individual errors and the players that are sharp, are really standing out. Patrick Bamford scoring goals that we didn't really expect. So maybe that, again, just shows you that certain players are kind of coming to the fore, but it's mainly that lack of a pre-season which the coaches have talked as being really important in terms of their preparation for a season. And the combination of having games of higher intensity when you're perhaps not necessarily quite there 
in yeah. terms of your fitness is, is mm -hmm. probably why we're, we're talking about injuries and why the fixture pileup will lead to more injuries, why Jose Mourinho was complaining, why uh, Pep Guardiola was complaining. And, and that is something about the, I, I used the word discombobulating earlier. Is, is, there, is there too much of a significance given to a, a, a player's wish to anchor itself, anchor themselves in precedent. That they, they want to, everything to feel like the same all mm. the time so that they can apply the right level of preparation and significance to a game that is happening. When all of that is stripped away, perhaps it's just a little bit difficult. And I'm, I'm not saying that they're all kind of flighty, flibberty gibbets, but they are, but they are all capable, surely, of, of at least applying the versatility to their to their seasonal regularities that makes it sound like a bowel movement but you know what I mean that, that they are surely capable of, of having that versatility but at the same time when you rip away all that kind of pre preceding structure that they're used to that might play at least some part. I can't believe Hugh has used discombobulate and flibberty gibbet during the same point and ended up sounding like somebody's going for a number two. <laughs> this, this pod's going to get a terrible reputation if that carries on Hugh can you stop it now? Can I ask Steve a question? Yes. Do, do you think that this is part of the Bundesliga-ification of the Premier League? That, that actually that there might be, that, although this will obviously settle down and we're not going to get like seven game, seven dollar game averages or anything throughout the season. But do you think there is something in this that now maybe a lot of teams are not just not very good at defending? This feels, Rory, like you're setting me up to reciprocate with pointing out that you made an excellent statement on social media the other day. If there was going to be an unexpected winner of a major European league, then this season feels like the season that it's going to happen because of all of the unusual circumstances. And perhaps what we're seeing in the Premier League, to, to bring it back to that sort of Bundesliga-fication of it, is that because the, the number of clubs at the top of the table in terms of the, the strength and depth they have at their disposal is growing, because we see what's happened at Wolves over the course of the last couple of seasons, the investment that Everton have made, that maybe this year it isn't quite so much a case of there being a really strong unit of four, five or six. That actually that runs a little bit deeper. And certainly perhaps we're not going to see a situation where you've got two completely outstanding teams ahead of the rest as Manchester City and Liverpool have been over the past, the last couple of seasons. So has that encouraged those teams further down the table to think, do you know what, maybe we can have a go at these sides, which is what happens in the Bundesliga, which is why you get open, high-scoring games. And, and perhaps that perception that Bundesliga teams can't defend because you don't get what you get regularly in the Premier League, which is teams deciding, do you know what, there's a dozen games a season that, we, that the chances of us getting anything out of it are so slim that we're not even going to, to consider that to be a possibility. Whereas that doesn't happen in the Bundesliga, with the exception of the games they play against Bayern Munich, they believe the points are there to be won. And if that's going to happen in the Premier League this season, I'm all in favour. And, and our final uh, seam to mine, which is something that I've continually stolen from Rory Smith, and to continue the wifification of uh, the Set Piece Menu episode number 198, we have an email from Morgan. He says this, dear all, insert gushing acclamation here, he says rather lazily, please, once and for all, sort out the handball rule. Start from scratch, workshop the subject, and please provide us with a definitive treatise on what is slash isn't handball for immediate reference slash use by FIFA and IFAB. Thanks. That's from Morgan. Now we turn over the airwaves to Stephen Wyeth. 
Well, as, as Rory pointed out with Offside when we were talking about that in relation to, to VAR, that the way that it's now being interpreted is completely out of keeping with the initial intent, which was to stop cheating, goal hanging, what have you. So too, we've got into this ludicrous situation with handball. And again, in the same way as with Offside, VAR will in the long term be a good thing. It will even things out. It will make, I'm absolutely convinced, it'll make football fairer and better in the long term. But when you implement something like that, you do have to consider where the downsides are going to be. And the fact that the, the rules and the, interp- or the laws and the interpretation of them are suddenly under the microscope because of our ability to pour over the footage and the ability of a video assistant referee to do likewise and make a decision based on that is what has led us initially to this issue with offside last season with people getting upset about marginal offside calls and even more so now with handball and let's be clear about a couple of things this is not the premier league's fault this is not premier league referees who are to blame this is the way firstly that the law is written and secondly that FIFA have come down hard and said that all leagues have to follow the letter of the law on handball. And that is why we are seeing these ridiculous handball decisions. The Premier League have not got the option available to them to say, in the, in the way that they did last season, say, we're not going to use the monitors, which was a bad decision. They do not have the option to say, we are going to take a common sense approach to this. They have to enforce the law as it is. And the law has become unwieldy and, as is being demonstrated, unusable. There is an easy way to solve handball. And as Morgan has suggested, tear it up and start again. And what if, would you have as your criteria law, for, for a handball? Clive Tilsley on social media uh, posted a really compelling rant about it. But he focused quite a bit on the deliberate aspect of handball. And I think we need to take deliberate out of it because you cannot. Whereas, on, whereas in offside, you can say, look, whether you like it or not, that person is offside. You're either on or you're off. With handball, you cannot define deliberate. You can't, it's so difficult in any aspect of life to define what was and what wasn't deliberate. Setting up this podcast. Exactly. It turned out to be a really <laughs> bad idea, yet here we are still going nearly 200 episodes in. The handball <laughs> law should be as this. In the official's opinion, could the player have done anything to prevent the ball striking their arm? If the answer to that question is yes, it is a handball. If they believe, in their opinion, the player could have done nothing to stop the, stri- the ball striking their arm or hand, then it isn't handball. And we get on with the game. All this silhouette stuff, deliberate or otherwise, is nonsensical. You have to leave a little bit of it to the interpretation of the officials to decide whether or not the player could have prevented that thing happening. And, in the, and to give a couple of recent examples, Joel Ward for Crystal Palace against Everton, there's nothing he could have done to stop the ball striking his arm. So that should not be a penalty. Whereas Neil Mopay, again, for Brighton against Manchester United, well, look, he led into an aerial challenge with his arm raised, his hand clenched in a fist. There are all sorts of things that Mopay could have done differently there to make sure that the ball didn't strike his arm. So, yes, the circumstances around it were unusual, but the penalty decision there was right and would also have been right under the Wyeth Amendment. 
the Wyeth Amendment like that. I, I'd actually go, go further. I think that Steve's right that, you, that the word deliberate is, is kind of nonsensical within a handball context because you're, you're asking referees to like read players' minds. I think we all know as fans what a handball looks like. And it's either your arm stretched out or kind of yeah, massively away from your body or it's this motion towards the ball. And I'd, I'd be inclined to go for a really, really limiting version of handball to rule all of those random ones out because otherwise I think you, you're kind of lending it too much weight in determining games. It becomes football, the bit of football where if the ball hits your hand becomes too important that's not really it, it should be a relatively handball should be a relatively minor law that we see invoked relatively infrequently it shouldn't be kind of to stop people picking the ball up and running with it well not, <laughs> not not quite that but like to stop you know to stop the kind of Suarez on the goal line against Ghana that sort of stuff that's when when handball should be kind of invoked it shouldn't be this kind of drip 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 of every game you're there's a good chance you're going to see about six handballs it's there's the big problem, I, I'm not as angry about this as I, as I am about offside, but the, pro- the problem I have with handball at the moment is I feel as it's become a bit kind of officious that the dire one, the ward one, they're not, they're not, no one really thinks they're handball. And if you just, the one that um, in the build up to Chelsea's third goal at the weekend from Havertz, that looked to me because of, because of last season, I was watching that and thinking, well, that's a handball that should be ruled down. It turns out that under the rules, the thing that happens two seconds before a goal is scored is not in the direct run up to a goal. And that's along with silhouetting and natural positioning. That's one of those weird things that football's kind of decided. But I just wonder whether we should, we should maybe look at a much stricter version of what actually constitutes a handball, which is seeking to gain a seeking to gain an unwarranted advantage through the use of your, of your upper appendages. I think that is, that is what we should look at more than kind of, Oh, it's the ball has hit his hand and it's from, it's from five yards. So he could do something about it, but it's, it's, if it's three yards and he can't. And I, I just think we we talk too much now about handball. It's too it it looms too large in our imaginations, and that there is a way of legislating against that. It seems that the rulemakers have thought this is football. So if your hand is involved in, in any way, we've got to come down on that and, and give decisions against the players. But they've actually last season there was this discussion about the attacking handball with the Declan Rice handball in the lead up to Snodgrass's goal at Bramall Lane then the Lucas Moore when he was fouled and the ball was cannoned off his arm and Harry Kane scored they've now changed that rule now that those goals will actually stand so because you've had instances and people have said this is absolute nonsense the Joel Ward the Eric Dyer it's, it's, it's the rules clearly that are wrong as Steve was saying it's not the implementation so a Tottenham member of the coaching staff coming over and berating the referee to a degree that he gets himself sent off the referee is implementing the law. Hearing pundits say VAR are ruining the game. VAR are implementing the rules. The rules are wrong. They were wrong last season in terms of the attacking handball. That's been altered. It's wrong in terms of the defensive handball. The rules need to be altered. Then the officials can apply those rules and everyone will be a lot be a lot. But it is related to VAR in the sense that a lot of these rules are now being retrofitted to suit the technology we have available. So that they are, they, they, they are having to come up with, with interpretations of the rules that can be consistently applied with the use of video mm-hmm. technology. And that's the problem. It all goes back to the fact that we shouldn't have kicked up such a fuss about referees not being done enough in the first place. This is, this is the world we all wanted, apparently. So we should really just sort it up. And so do you, do you feel that handball is, again, subjective? If, if the rule was, as, as you've talked about, it's a looser rule. And again, you let the referees ultimately decide whether there is a, is a deliberate act there, the body, the arm is in a natural position, it's moved towards the ball. It isn't definitive, maybe like offside is. It is a bit more subjective. If the laws were a bit yeah. looser, you could say to the referee, that we, there's a question mark here. 
go and have a look at it yourself and you give it or you don't. Do you need to give the referees more power because the law needs to give them more power to be subjective and decide whether they think is, there's any intention there or, or the, the arm is in an unnatural position? I, th- I think I personally, the law. I think there needs to be a degree of kind of, is this obviously a handball yes, about yeah. it? Like the, the referees need, to, if the referee doesn't see it the first time, then that they need to go, the VAR basically needs to go say to them, look, go and have a look. And yeah, like if the, if the player's, sort of jumping like Spider-Man or if he's punched it or it's he sort of reached out and just tapped it away then fine that, that's but, with the, but with the Eric Dyer one VAR is obliged to throw that back down to the referee because of the laws they say it's yeah. hit his arm it's away from his body it's in the penalty area they're obliged they can't ignore that and say well we can see why it's, it's, he clearly didn't he had no, in, no control of what he's doing yeah. they have to throw that back to the referee and the referee is then bound by the laws to give the penalty so they're constrained by the laws even though they might not agree with it and yep. I actually think that the debate about VAR's involvement is a lot more mature now because we've had a year of VAR and because this time last year we were blaming VAR for implementing rules and we yep. were getting very frustrated with that because we were arguing it was the rules that were, the, that, that were providing the problem and VAR was simply illustrating the issues that were within those rules. So at least now, and, and Jamie Carragher's impassioned rant after that, uh, that one, um, uh, the Eric Dyer one, was, was essentially to say... FIFA IFAB sought this out because he now, a year on, has realised that it is the rule that is providing the problem and that the referees are being dragged into it via VAR or deciding themselves without the use of video technology that, in fact, it is the rule that is providing the problem and the blame should not necessarily be levelled at those who are implementing it correctly because, as Steve said, they are having to do so because there's no wiggle room given to them by FIFA. But yet there are still pundits out there saying VAR is ruining our game. It is wrong. And they're completely wrong. They we have wrong. To actually, and everyone just jumps on that and said, yes, yeah. it's VAR. No, it absolutely isn't. It's the lawmakers. And I keep I said it in a couple of times in commentary. You've got to educate. If, if anyone out there thinks that's the case, it clearly isn't. VAR, it will be, I, I do believe in time, it will be, as long as they can iron out these inconsistencies. Very, very good yeah. for the game. But don't blame them for something that is nothing to do with them. Michael Owen tweeted over the weekend after a lot of these incidents very concisely what Chinch has, has just described there. And you just think, fine. And, and a lot of people were still getting into it. No, no, VAR is wrong. If you hear somebody saying VAR is ruining the game, challenge them. Because it, it simply is not. It is simply implementing some crazy, crazy laws. And the hand, we talked about the handball one before it was most recently updated by IFAB. And we said at the time it needed simplifying. And they made it more complicated. I'm perfectly happy with goals being ruled out, if it, even if it's accidentally come off the arm, or if the, the pass that leads to the goal, the assist, comes off an arm. Because I think, do you know what? Within the spirit of things, you shouldn't be able to score a goal with your arm, even if it's accidental. But... We need to give the referees the opportunity to say, and they should maybe only watch the incident again when they go to the monitor, only watch it at full speed, because that mm. will help give them a guide as to whether or not the player could have done anything about it. The Dyer one is a good example of one. I'm, I'm not as outraged by that as I was by the Joel Ward one, because Dyer had his back to the play and his arm was out a little bit. It's still ludicrous. I'm not suggesting for one minute that should have been a penalty, but I'm slightly, I'm less sympathetic about that because arguably Dyer was slightly out of position. And the one example that I would give as the one where there is a gray area and we would have to accept is cast your minds back to PSG, Manchester United, Champions League knockout stages a couple of seasons yeah, ago, yeah. the Kimpembe one. Long range shots that... 
Kimpembe turned his back to the play and the ball struck his arm. After consideration, a penalty was given. I had no sympathy with Kimpembe on that occasion because he showed a lack of bravery by turning himself against the shot. He had his arm dangling out and I thought the right decision was made, penalty given. But I would fully understand if a referee looked at that again on the monitor, overlooked the fact that Kimpembe had shirked the the obvious thing to do which was to just block the shot with his body and said well there's nothing he could have done about that his arm was not that far away from him I'm not giving a penalty under those circumstances I'd have been fine so there, there will still be grey areas and have some go for you and some go against but if you gave the referee even with the benefit of the use of the monitor the opportunity to make the decision whether or not the player mm -hmm. could have done something about it then we would all be in a much better place because I think 95% of the time people would be in agreement. So if I'm talking about having maybe a slightly looser law, if you look at the Eric Dyer situation... I think you mean tighter. I think you mean tighter as in... To no, say no, I'm terms of looser. No, I'll explain myself in a way. The, the law says, um, yeah, it's, it's, his arm is out. It's clearly struck his arm and he's inside the penalty area. So the law can say, well, that's worth looking at because there's a possibility of a handball in there. But then you throw it to the referee... Yeah. And go say, have a look on the monitor and the referee, look at it in real time, look at it. So again, we're not disputing the fact it's hit his arm, but then the referee can say, was there any intent from Eric Dyer? Was he looking to benefit from that situation? And because you're giving the referee, again, you've given him the law. We, we think this could be a handball. You, you can give what you want to do, but common sense would probably say, well, no, he's, it's not intentional. He's clearly not looking to benefit. So I'm not going to give that. So again, you just pass that responsibility down to the referee. There's a, there's a loose-ish law in place to say, it does strike his arm and it is in the penalty area. So look at it. But again, the choice is still yours. Do you feel, and again, handball has to be based on something. Intent and looking to benefit from sticking your arm out. And I think if you did that, we'd see situations where the referee would say, I'm looking at it. I know what you're saying, but in my opinion, and clearly everyone's opinion, he wasn't in control. There was no intent, not, not looking to benefit. It's no penalty. So again, you'd maybe have to loosen the law, have, have it to a degree, but loosen it, but pass the responsibility yeah. to the on-field official. A tighter phrasing looser interpretation but still give the referee the the opportunity to say you know if a player is stood there i know this is not great on an audio podcast but if a player is stood with his arms out in a star shape and the ball strikes his hand yes. from point blank range that's a penalty because mm -hmm. he, he could have done something about it by lowering his arms absolutely but if they if, if from point blank range they hit, it hits his hand with his arms down by his side then you're giving the referee the opportunity to say well look there's literally there's nothing he could have done about that so i'm not giving that because what they're and, doing it seems it, it should be subjective but it doesn't seem to be subjective yeah. the referees are obliged to give penalties yeah. for the ball striking an arm yeah. in a penalty area when i feel it, it should be changed to give them the opportunity. As you've said, if it's a star shape, it's pretty clear. If it's Eric Dyer, it, it obviously isn't a penalty really by, by common sense. But that subjectivity should not be applying intent or the, the nature of whether it is deliberate or not to that player. The subjectivity, yes, could he have done anything to avoid it? There is certain subjectivity of that, but not full subjectivity to try and, uh, as Roy just said, you know, look into the mind of the defender and wonder whether he was intending to do it or not. And I know because you wanted to keep the discussion about handball to the end, I didn't bring this up earlier, but you, we started this discussion about, you know, why had there been so many goals? And this handball thing is a big contributor towards that. Because in the first 30 games of last season, cumulative games of last season, there were eight penalties. There's been 20 in the first 26 games of this season. And last season, none of those early penalties were for handball. This season, six of them have been. This was all from Sunday night's match of the day too, by the way. This is not research I've done myself. I'm not taking the credit for it. And they demonstrated that 
this, this situation already existed in, in the Bundesliga and in Serie A from last season when they, were, when they were, had already implemented the more stringent guidelines as laid down by IFAB and FIFA. We're simply catching up and we're just going to have to get used to it because this, we, we, we're yeah. not going, they're not going to change their minds. FIFA and IFAB are not going to go, oh, do you know what? We've looked at the statistics from the Premier League and this is clearly ridiculous. So do you know and what? Jamie Carragher's had a yeah. go at us. So. And Jamie Vardy will score more goals from the penalty spot this season than he scored in all circumstances last season. That's my new prediction for this season. <laughs> and it has to be related to Jamie Vardy. Yeah, I, I do think the handball law will be probably uh, amended. It has to be amended. I just think from, from a common sense point of view but also let's give you know VAR and the referees a panel you look at the Man-, Man City game the three penalties that were given were all backed up by VAR but the referees actually made the right decision yeah. as the instance happened so again we've got to appreciate involving handball good, they didn't they didn't do anything wait for VAR tell them somebody they made a strong decision not a strong decision the right decision VAR didn't get involved because they had a look at it and checked it and we carried on so let's Again, if we leave it in the hands of the referees, that tends to get forgotten when referees get it right and we just we concentrate on the Eric Dyer situation. But that Man City game, a great example of, of the officials and VAR working perfectly well together. But Chinch, you can give, you put us into the mind of a fullback in, under these circumstances because you, you, you know, you're going to start thinking, do you know what? The longer the ball is bouncing around in a penalty area, the more likely it is to strike my arm and I'll concede a, a penalty. So do you know what? I'm going to dive into this challenge now to try and stop that happening. And you might concede a penalty in those circumstances instead. So it could perpetuate and that could be the reason that we will see so many penalties because in trying to avoid one set of circumstances, you cause another. Well, that, well, that's why the law, like Eric Dyer, should not be penalised for his arm, the ball being struck. So it's, it's unfair. But actually, it might sharpen defenders up. The handball, again, the law is so crazy that you, you can do absolutely nothing in a penalty is given. You're not in control of that. But actually, in terms of, you know, Kyle Walker, the penalty he gave away, Benjamin Mendy, Eric Garcia, they can defend and learn to defend better because they just need to be a lot sharper. Their defensive positioning, they need to be on their toes a lot more. So actually it might actually sharpen defenders up because they're getting away with absolutely nothing. The handball, in, in many instances, is, is not their fault. The ball is striking an arm, penalties given, and they haven't done anything wrong. So I think VAR, not missing anything, could sharpen yeah. defenders up. Just to be clear, Chinch, there's nothing IFAB or FIFA can do to amend the laws regarding stupidity. <laughs> no, that's... And yeah, that's I, I all on the players. Can, I don't think we should go on a crusade for that. It's, we, we, we're just going down a cul-de-sac. Uh, on a rare occasion, we have managed to be cyclical. We'll we have kind of ended up uh, speaking about what we started. So well done, everybody. That's what planning looks like. Now, as I mentioned earlier and last week, I was on holiday last week. There are two things that invariably happen when I go on holiday. I fail to get a tan and I read a Jack Reacher book. Both things annoy my wife endlessly. I will never have holidays as regularly as Lee Child churns out a new Reacher, so I'm a couple behind. But upon reading Past Tense, with the tagline on the back cover of, the present can be tense, but the past can be worse, (laughs) that's for damn sure. (laughs) Oh yes. I happen upon a section I thought would be brought to life by the great Reacher reader, Andy Hinchcliffe. If you're new to the pod, this is when Andy, for no reason whatsoever and with no context whatsoever, takes us into the world of the ex-military cop who roams America looking to right wrongs. And so we join our hero in an alleyway, where else? Where he has encountered a man who has inappropriate designs on a cocktail waitress. This, Chinch, is where you pick up the story. I, I know these sections are random, but this is, this is a classic Reacher passage. Care for the ladies. Utter disregard for young books and supposed tough cookies. This, this is truly brilliant. Here we go. Reacher said, hey, 
take your hands off her, kid. The boy said, this is none of your business. It is now. You woke me up. Get lost. I heard her say no, so step back. The kid half turned. He was wearing a sweatshirt embroidered with the name of a famous university. He was a big, solid boy, maybe 6'3", 220 pounds, maybe an athlete. He was rippling with youth and excitement. He had a look in his eye. He thought he was one hell of a guy. The woman looked from him to reach her and back again, and again as if choosing, as if down to her last 20 bucks at the racetrack. She made her decision. She took her keys from her bag, unlocked her door, and stepped inside and closed her door behind her. The boy in the sweatshirt stared first at the door and then at Reacher, who jerked his head towards the mouth of the alley and said, run along now, kid. The boy stared a minute longer, apparently thinking hard, and then he went. He walked out of the alley and turned out of sight to the right, which made him right-handed. He would want to set up his ambush so that Reacher would walk face first into a free-swinging right hook, which pretty much defined the location about three feet around the corner, Reacher thought level with the edge of the bag shop's window because of the pivot point for the right hook. Basic geometry, fixed in space, but not fixed in time. Speed was under Reacher's control. The kid would be expecting a normal kind of approach, plus or minus. He would trigger the hook at the first glimpse of Reacher coming around the corner. Any kind of normal walking pace would bring it home good and solid. The kid wasn't dumb, possibly an athlete. Therefore, nothing would be done at normal or average speed. Reacher stopped six paces short of the corner and waited and waited, and then he took another pace, a slow sliding scrape across the grit and dirt, and then he paused and waited, and took another long step, slow sliding, ominous, and then another long wait, and another slow step. He pictured the kid around the corner, tensed up, his fist cocked, holding his position. Reacher took another step, long and slow. Now he was six feet from the corner. He waited and waited, and then he launched fast at a run, his left hand up, palm open, fingers spread like a baseball glove. He burst around the corner and saw the kids sputtering to life, confused by the change of pace, locked into slow motion waiting, so that his triumphant right hook was so far coming out like a herky-jerky, feeble squib, which Reacher caught easily in his left palm, like a soft liner to second. The kid's fist was big, but Reacher's open hand was bigger, so he clamped down and squeezed, not hard enough to crush the bones, but hard enough to make the kid concentrate on keeping his mouth shut, so no whines or squeals came out, which obviously he couldn't afford being a hell of a guy. Then Reacher squeezed harder, mostly as an IQ test, which the kid failed. He used his free hand to claw at Reacher's wrist, the wrong move, unproductive. Always better to go straight at the source of the problem and use your free hand to hit the squeezer in the head or thumb out the eye or otherwise get his attention. But the kid didn't, a missed opportunity. Reacher said, want me to hit you? No reply. It's not a difficult question, Reacher said. A yes or no answer will do it. Want me to hit you? No. Reacher hit him in the face with a straight right, maximum force, crashing and twisting like a freight train. The kid's lights went out immediately. He went slack and gravity took over. Reacher kept his left hand rock solid. All the kid's weight fell on his own locked elbow. Reacher waited. One of two things would happen. Either the strength and the elasticity of the kid's ligaments would roll him forward or they wouldn't. They didn't. The kid's elbow broke and his arm turned inside out. Reacher let him fall. He landed on the bricks outside the bag shop, one arm right and the other arm wrong, like a swastika. He was breathing, a little bubbly from the blood in his throat. His nose was badly busted, cheekbones too, maybe. Some of his teeth were out, upper row mostly. The dentist kid was going to get just, be just fine for college. Reacher walked away, back to his lodgings, up the winding stair and through the low door to his room, where he took a second shower and got back in bed, once again warm and damp. He punched the pillow into shape. 
and went back to sleep. Great to hear that again. It's been too long, Chinch. Oh, that was that. That I don't think it gets any better. I don't think it gets any better. Pretty much everybody uh, listening to that will not have been imagining Tom Cruise uh, go through uh, that. Uh, anybody but Tom Cruise. Reacher Rigmarole. Did you know that they have now the Amazon TV show have recruited their Reacher? Oh. Uh, and so everybody, Google at the ready. His name is Alan Richson. He is a lot taller and a lot blonder than Tom Cruise. Um, so Alan Richson is going to be the Reacher in the television show. And I'm sure everybody is just as excited as all of us. Um, how thank you, Chinch. How do you spell Richson? It's Rich, then Sun. R-I-T-C-H-S-O-N. Yeah, so it's not Rich Sun, is it? Well. <sighs> Let's have a look at him. Let's have a look at him. Are you jealous, Chinch? Do you, are, you, are you surprised that you didn't get the call? He's not... He's... <sighs> I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I just, just Googled and it, Google image and he's come up with a topless one of uh, Alan Richson. Which no, there are others, but I just, uh, for some reason, just there's, really there's honed one, in on the topless one. There's one with him with a, with a kind of dirty blonde hair, which, which works. And he's got a bit of a craggy face when you go in close. Uh, the, the, the casting's all wrong again. This guy is tremendously good looking and buff, but he's not Reacher. He really isn't Reacher. They need to go out there, maybe comb the streets of Stockport, and they, there will be a Reacher out there, but he, he won't be known to us. He is, no, this, Reacher's taken lumps, and he's massive, and he's, he's muscled, but he's, he's, generally, he's more big than muscled. No, no, I, I've got a, a picture in, in my mind of Reacher, and it isn't, certainly isn't Tom Cruise. And Alan Richson, I'm a big fan of your work, don't know what he's done, but he is, he is not Reacher. I'm sorry, you're not Reacher. Wait till you find out, Chinch, that the people that play Superman can't actually fly. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, keep your uh, myth-busting uh, correspondence coming into seppiesmenu at gmail.com. Any uh, comments upon Alan Richardson being a suitable or not Reacher, let us know. If you have any Reacher passages, by the way, that you'd like Andy to read, or indeed a soccer story that you'd like to tell us, uh, just to ease the burden on our mighty former England international, please do send them over to seppiesmenu at gmail.com. And don't forget to enter SPMPLPL. It is at tinyurl.com forward slash set piece menu. You have until the end of Monday, October the 5th. Chinch, the end of Monday, October the 5th. Chinch, to submit your selections. Do it, do it, do it. Chinch, please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy and Stephen to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. That, that seemed a good pod today. We, we, as you said, we seemed to go, we covered all the topics and then got back to the kind of the start again. That was good, Hugh. Well done. Well controlled for once. We're, we're getting, they're getting a bit longer. Do people like the longer pods? I mean, is it, are we helping out in, in these Depend, lockdown Depends how much pods. walking in the woods they're doing, running away from bears, that type of thing. The, the longer, the better, really. You don't want a short pod where the bear mauls you. You Maybe want to the, keep on running, The fitter the bears get, the longer the pod needs ah, to be. That's what we've we got to counter here, because bears, they're doing their stretches. They are ready to go when the humans come along. This guy, Alan Richon, against a bear, I don't know, 50-50 chance. He looks a bit like Kiefer Sutherland, and Kiefer Sutherland would not be reached. I'm going to find, I'm going to take a picture of someone. If I find someone out in the world, I'm going to take a picture of them, send it to you and say, that is you know, Reacher. It's, it's Do you know who he looks for? 240 pounds. He's one inch and 10 pounds away from actual Reacher. Listen, you can be a few pounds, you know, close to Reacher. You can be an inch shorter than Reacher. Doesn't make you Reacher, does it? Peter Crouch is similar size to Jack Reacher in height, but he's not Jack Re Oh, my God. Don't cast Peter Crouch as... <laughs> as Jack Reacher, I'll have to give He's up. He's doing everything else. Exactly. <laughs>